Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 5th of February 2018. I'm Joe and with me are Jesse. Please call me Mr. Jesse. Hi, <laughs> Key. Please call me Mrs. Wait, no, no, no. <laughs> Next. <laughs> and failing. Uh. <laughs> Senor. <laughs> Senor failing. We'll go with that. See. Anyway, so we've got an interview coming up later. Uh, but first, some news and exciting news from the KDE team for once. It genuinely is exciting. Testing Plasma Mobile on both x86 and mobile devices. I've been doing it. Have any of you? Nope. What? What have you been testing it on, Joe? I have tested it on my Vivo book, which is an 11-ish inch touchscreen laptop. That doesn't sound like a mobile device. No. I think I've got it on one of my mobile devices. I haven't been doing that. But this this came out of uh, the KDE tweeted, and I think some other place as well, a poll that said, we want Plasma Mobile to become really good this year. How can you help us do that? And the the biggest response was, I want to test it. And so there's been two blog posts by, I'm going to butcher his name, I think it's uh, Bushan Shah, that may well be wrong. But he uh, has done two blog posts, one testing it on x86 devices and one testing it on mobile devices. And it's a bit more of a ball ache. Well, it's a lot more of a ball ache to do it on mobile devices. So the, the ISO for x86 is really just easy. You just DD it and boot to it like you would a normal Linux. And obviously it's better if you've got a touchscreen, but there's not really any reason why you couldn't emulate that with a mouse just to test it. So failing, you've been lazy. Why haven't you tested this out? Yeah, some of us do a lot of work for a living, so uh, yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but this implies that you don't have much interest in KDE um, Plasma Mobile then. Yeah, but I've nothing to touch it with on the screen. I don't know, with a mouse, is that really going to work? Oh, I don't know. Kind of a bit, maybe. Oh, it just sounds naff. Can you give us some sort of overview as to how far through this is? I mean, are, we, are we talking this is alpha and they've managed to make something boot or are there apps? Is there, a, is there basically a clock and a calendar? Where are we? There are certainly apps, but it is also certainly alpha. It's a good alpha is what I would describe it as. It's not perfect, but it's certainly getting there. So hang on a sec. How come you haven't been scathing in your attack? Why would I be scathing? Because you're usually scathing in your attack, <laughs> unless it's the most pristine and perfect thing in the world ever. Unless it's XFCE with a black background. XFCE is perfect and pristine, so I would never have any reason to uh, say anything bad about it. But the reason that I'm cutting this some flack, same reason for UbiPorts, because it's not being pitched as a finished product that's amazing. It's being pitched as a work in progress. We want people to help test it. We want people to help improve it. And we want to make it so it is something that is good and is a really good product. But at the moment, it's just a work in progress project. And the modesty that they have for that means that I can cut it some slack and I'm not going to shit all over it because compare it to iOS and Android and it's shit. There's no two ways about it, but I don't think it's fair to do that until they say that it's ready. So Gmail with bait on it could have got away with anything essentially then. Does it matter if it's company or not? <sighs> that That is a whole different debate, I think. And there is a tendency in open source, a very strong tendency to just release shit when it's not even finished and then never finish it. And Gmail having beta on it for anything more than the first year or two was just bullshit and marketing, I think. Um, but yeah, I take the point that maybe 
at some point we have to stop cutting things slack um and we'll get to that at the end of the news when i think when things are released as a product and that's why i was always so down on ubuntu touch when they were selling it in um well not in shops but on websites and you could buy it as a consumer product and it was shit then i was i thought it was an embarrassment to the whole open source free software movement but if it's just an iso that you have to manually download and test on stuff then i think it's fine to for it to not be 100% and that's how we develop these things in this community isn't it in the open so kde have asked people to test this and obviously the the function of that testing is to get feedback comments improvements what have you and and assuming you haven't done that through the official forums what would your feedback or or critique be well i haven't spent a huge amount of time with it to be honest and i haven't given them any bug reports or anything it's something that i tested out sort of quite briefly for about i don't know half an hour maybe and was quite impressed with it and meant to get back to it and then haven't done that so i i don't think that i've got any great critique for it i think that since the last time i played with it it has improved significantly and i suppose that's all i can say really that not much didn't work there's there's not that much there still there are a few apps and they seem to work quite well and the thing is that generally speaking with these mobile os's often it'll be the drivers that are a bit shonky and make it shit whereas with this on an x86 machine you're taking advantage of all of the underlying ubuntu kernel and linux kernel stuff that makes it work perfectly on a laptop and then just sticking this ui on top and that's why it seems to work really well so maybe it's unfair to base it on the x86 version because well no i suppose it's not unfair because that that tells you what they what the actual code is and then it's not just the underlying like android compatibility layers and all of that shit that's making it shit on other devices fair enough and and this must prepare us for the operating system which is going to be on uh that mobile phone that keeps on getting talked about the librem 5 the librem yes because they recently came out and said that they've they're going to do both gnome and kde and so this is the the taste that you'll get if you if you go for the kde version in theory, yes, if they ever actually deliver it. And um, I was talking to Chris on the other show about this yesterday, and we're pretty down on it. That we think they should just stick to one and make it good because they're also considering UB ports as well. And I think that they should not have any of that shit. And if you want a phone that is blobless and runs completely free software, then base it on Replicant or Lineage and then work on the hardware drivers and everything and you've got a fully functional operating system with F-Droid and all the rest of it, loads of apps that are mobile ready, and there's just no point in pissing around with something that is this early. If you are going to do something that's the sort of proper GNU slash Linux, then Plasma Mobile is what I would pick, definitely, over Gnome. There's just no two ways about it. It is definitely further along. Or UbiPorts, which, well, Ubuntu Touch, their branding seems to be all over the place. But either way, one of those two, definitely not Gnome. And just because your own OS on your x86 machines is running GNOME doesn't mean that you should necessarily be looking to run it on a mobile device. That's my two cents on that anyway. Yeah, I like how you said Replicant without laughing. That's good. <laughs> well, the, what, what holds back Replicant? Hardware drivers. And the point of this phone is that it's going to have properly free hardware drivers. 
So what's the, the there'll be no problem with Replicant. Otherwise, it's just basically OSP, isn't it? I thought it was like three versions behind. Well, yeah, but that's why I'm saying Lineage or Replicant. You know, if you took Lineage, which is totally open source apart from the blobs, put in not blobs, but actual code for the uh, drivers that you need to make it run, then you'd have something that is totally free software, wouldn't you? And I, I was speaking to Dalton from the UbiPorts project about this, and he said that, yeah, well, it's not as easy as you think to just run Android on a device just because GNU slash Linux runs doesn't mean that um, Android will. But I said to him that it's surely easier and cheaper to make that work than it is to write a whole new operating system from scratch. But um, there we go. Anyway, we've probably spent too much time on that, so let's move on. So Flight Gear is a game that you love, failing because you are some sort of uh, aviation nut. And I didn't even realize, I knew it was available for Linux, but I didn't realize it was a GPL game, which is quite unusual for something good in the gaming world to be GPL. And it's not just a game, it's a proper simulator. All right, whatever. And it's actually an FAA simulator, a certified simulator for certain aircraft. And in fact, the Red Bull Air Races use it during the um, the. I've never actually watched it, but I'm I've I've heard that it's used in between the sequences. They use one of the aircraft to fly the uh, courses. All right. So it's a proper simulator that's like up there with professional ones. Then. Yeah, it is professional. So my. Uh Dad actually works in the uh, aerospace sector and his company uses this for replicating the flights that have happened or whether they want to display something to a, a client or a company or something. They'll use this to model a known flight path with the flight, with the plane, with the colours, with the ground, with the terrain, all these sorts of things. Rather than flying the plane as a simulator, they put the parameters into the programme and the programme just displays it as if it had happened. So it, it's... As much for, I think, professional use as it is for, you know, hobbyists and people who want the most authentic uh, Airbus or Boeing or what have you. Um, I mean, yeah, you can you can fly and like you said, it's uh, GPL. So the whole point is that people can improve the models, whether it be terrain of airports or whether it be, uh, you know, the model they have for trees or planes and the new... Um, uh, there's a word for colours on aircraft. Help me out, Phelan. Uh Oh, liveries. No, not liveries. Yes, the livery. Yeah, yeah thank you very much. Um, and so you, you can improve those as, as they become uh, changed, in my view. And there's a problem here where, obviously, if people are upstreaming stuff, the whole point is you have one place where all of these changes happen, and Flight Gear had quite a long process by which they tried to work out how they would deal with... Uh, I can't remember what they were dealing with, but they, they had a long sort of chat about it and the groups basically said, right, we're going to do it this way. And so they went that way and now someone's forked it and they're having a bit of a uh, hard time. Yeah, it was a lot to do with a lot of the aircraft work that was being done. There was a lot of dubious legal issues to where people got sounds for aircraft and stuff like that as like engine noises and some of the graphics for the airplane. Because if you suddenly turn up with the Lufthansa logo, it's like, well... Hmm, where did you get the Lufthansa logo from? Because that's a copyright or trademarked symbol. So you can't remake that be a GPL product, you know, things like that. So um, these guys forked off into a group called FG Members, um, where they were a bit more lax with that type of stuff. And they essentially started taking a dump of the uh, main re repos. And they started 
uh, collating all that together so people could upload there. And they, what appears to be effectively started hitting up the uh, developers saying, hey, you know, you should come over, join this team. We're doing really well over here. Look, it's lots of fun, blah, blah, blah. And started to try and attract people over to their side. And the problem is that the data doesn't make it back into the main system. So the main flight gear group has put out a big statement because this has been simmering for years. And they put out a statement to say that, look, it is a hostile fork. We're here to try and make the overall health of the project for the next 20 years because it's 20 years old now. And, you know, we're trying to keep this thing alive and make sure that in 20 years time, there's actually still a project around. And so do you think this is a serious threat to it long term? Well, I think it could be because, I mean, if you have what looks like all the cool kids hanging out, not caring and just going, hey, look, we've got great planes over here. This is great. And you just go download them. If you are on the outside and you don't care and you don't care about licensing as people apparently don't care about anymore these days, if we're led to believe, then, yeah, you probably would go and download that because that would seem like the easy way to get all the cool stuff. So, yeah, I think there's a bit of a danger there. So I think it's really good that they're making a statement, putting it out there. But equally, I think it acts as quite a good advertisement because they are doing a lot of work as well on the infrastructure of the main um, flight gear um, build system. And they're trying to put a lot of work in there to try and make it easier for the scenery guys to build stuff up, for all of these things to be done in... um, containers and stuff like that so i think they're working hard there trying to make the infrastructure easier to, to work with so people can get involved a bit more as well yeah it seems like one of those projects that while you have to have bureaucracy and tedium and go through the hoops and tick the boxes and what have you it means that in you know if, if any of those companies like you're saying failing if any of those companies come along and have an issue you can fall back on your QA and you can say look these are the things we've done we've made sure that everything is is open or has the correct licensing what have you we haven't broken any rules whereas if this fork five years down the line who have been basically letting anything in like you say whether they get appropriate um, information off the internet or whether they just sort of get in, get in trademark and licensed um, visuals or sounds and things putting them into these models in five years time if someone you know someone comes along and says well none of this is legal you have to take it all down suddenly you, it, it all gets removed and you have no flight sim at all and, and so it might seem it's one of those things that might seem boring and actually, you know, later on when we have a, a discussion with Jono about uh, communities and things, it's sort of part of that as to, it might seem boring for the community to be having to do these things in a very tedious way, but it it is the way that the world works. And unfortunately, if you don't follow it, you know, by the book, you may well not have much of a life in the future because you'll suddenly fall foul and, and have to give it all up. Yeah, well, speaking of boring, I'm bored of that now, so let's move on. Um, so, Screw you, planes are brilliant, shut up. <laughs> so Linux boot, let Linux do it. This seems too good to be true. Did you put this in Phalium? If so, please tell us about it. Uh, I did, yeah. I thought I was already onto a winner with one of my predictions, but not quite. Alas, it works for about like two or three systems at best and then may require soldering, I think. I'm not entirely sure, but um, yeah, it's a way to get 
essentially a system up and running with a Linux firmware on it. Yeah, so replacing the UEFI, essentially. Yeah, essentially, yeah. And uh, there's a really good talk there we've linked to. I mean, it's quite in-depth, um, far more in-depth than I think any of us can really give it any justice. But um, we've there's a really cool set of links there, and there's some video from the 34C3 talk and stuff. Um, but like they have some crazy stats there where they got one of their servers that they had that took eight minutes to boot standard, and they got it up to something like 30 seconds or something like that, which is just crazy. What the fuck kind of server takes eight minutes to boot? Ones with many cores. Yeah. Have you ever seen a HP server boot? It's the most frightening thing to do remotely because you don't know whether you've fucked it or whether it's <laughs> it's just fine. Yeah, if you've got full HPC systems, like you're talking in the lines of massive electrical draw, you have to notify the utility company before you're rebooting them. Like this is the level of computing we're talking about. Oh, okay. So this is not just little dual Xeon boxes or whatever. New. Even a standard server, though, is going to take you five, six minutes to reboot. Really? Yeah, because they've got all the RAID controller cards. They've got the the BIOS boot that comes on, the wait for pixie crap that waits there. Oh, they're scary things to reboot because you don't know if your thing's actually died. Especially if you do a kernel upgrade, you're sitting there going... <laughs> There's no screen. <laughs> you're sitting there going, do I know the ILO fucking details for the server? Oh, dear God, why did I not check that first? <laughs> I see. I'm used to VMs booting in, like, 20 seconds so yeah, well at some point you have to reboot the server that runs the vms and that's when you shit yourself <laughs> yeah fair enough well this sounds amazing i can't believe that it's not further along the the website does not lead you to believe that it is um in the state that you said it, it's kind of looks more ready for mainstream action but it's not then yet by the sounds of things not quite no i'm worried by it why because even if you go through the FAQ, there is not enough mentions of update processes. And as we know, firmware is something that should be updated and, should, you know, vendors should be promoted to actually do updates to important systems. And if this is going to be a new project, so like let's replace all of your outdated crappy firmware with something shiny, new and secure. Why is there no mention of updates? You know, this should be one of the guiding principles of a new project for something like this. And it makes barely any mentions at all. And that slightly worries me. Like this is going to basically be, you, you know, you'll have like your IoT types come along and say, all right, well, this particular build works and we're using this version of the kernel and we will never update it ever again. It is worrying, but if you want an update, Ike, I give you Mycroft Mark II. <laughs> beans beans good for you <laughs> uh, yeah what are beans so this is what i was talking about earlier when i said the difference between a project and a product so we all know about mycroft mark one and popey's video about what are beans which did reasonably well on youtube but it looks things now they are back with mycroft mark two and it's got a little screen on it and it's supposedly got these really amazing microphones and it's looking really good from the the promo videos and it responds really quickly with a human sounding voice it looks absolutely great if you like that sort of bollocks like uh, the alexas and google homes of the world i have no interest in that but i know a lot of people do but that's the thing there are a lot of claims here and we have seen that they made some pretty big claims with the mark one so, well, first of all, let's get this out of the way. Of 
the people on this show who is backing this. Right, I thought so, no one. But they've smashed through their goal. They wanted £35,000-ish. That must have been a dollar amount. Um, and it's showing as 145 at this point with 18 days to go. So it's definitely happening. They've got the money coming in. But uh, I just... Look, as much as I want this to be amazing, uh, fool me once, won't get fooled again, as George Bush said. <laughs> I'm not having it. I'm pretty sure he didn't say it that eloquently. <laughs> Fish are friends. <laughs> but, right, so does anyone have any hopes for this actually being good? No. Definitely not. Their video... Did, like with the guy sat there and he was saying what's the weather and what's the time and set a timer and cancel the timer it did seem to be responding fairly quickly on the desk like they had an actual video of it doing a thing so did the last video yeah but it's all well and good to get some bloke in a vo studio to be the voice of it and then <laughs> mix it into your promo video <laughs> it's another for the actual fucking product to do it you're saying that they just put a telephone in a box and a guy stood off screen <laughs> responding with a telephone? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Well, do we remember the promos from last time? I don't know. I, I remember a lot of claims, but I don't think there was anything... Well, one of the promo videos had the good voice. Oh, really? Yeah, and obviously that never happened. Like, you didn't actually have the full quality voice in it, ever. Um, that was on one of the promo videos. There was another one where it was responding almost instantly. That was actually the ad that had Ryan in it. The one where the Netflix and chill remark was made towards the end. Remember that video? No, I'll have to dig that out and have a look. Well, it also responded immediately then. And as we've seen from the videos and the unboxing for the however many people that actually got one, because a lot of people didn't get one, it does not respond immediately. Like what was shown in the videos did not correlate with what people were given. So skeptical would like it to be successful, would really hope that it was because, you know, it's playing into exactly what people want, an open system that doesn't mine all your data. That would be great. But, you know, they haven't exactly delivered in the past. Mm. Well, if someone from the company wants to come on and tell us how amazing it's going to be, that would be great, but be prepared for some difficult questions. Yeah, I mean, full full disclosure, like, yes, I am very sceptical about it happening, but please, for fuck's sake, prove me wrong. Oh, yeah. Like, actually do it and make something awesome so we can all look stupid and feel great simultaneously by actually getting one. So, yeah, prove us wrong, man. I think you should just have a competition and use that money to hire the actor who did the voice for Kit to just answer your questions and search stuff for you <laughs> online for a day. Or however his hourly rate is, I have no idea. But maybe he's dead, which would be unfortunate. But Yeah, just sit him somewhere with a laptop. Yeah. yeah. Good thinking. Well, yeah, as like you said, I, I want to be proven wrong. I'm very sceptical. I really want it to work because there is a demand for this inexplicably there is a demand for voice assistance and we've got to have something that's competitive for once we've got to not be behind the curve with open source so here's hoping but uh yeah not holding my breath uh right so on to a bit of admin then and first of all thank you to everyone for supporting us on paypal and patreon even if i can't get the money out of patreon this month because they're bastards and are not displaying the email address correctly and have not replied to my ticket so fuck you, Patreon, but do keep supporting us. I'm sure they'll sort it out eventually, and it is much appreciated. If you want to join them, go to latenightlinux.com support. 
And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Um, so, yeah, wow. Jesse asked a question last time about searching in file managers, and he phrased it so badly that me and Phelan had no fucking idea what he was talking about. We have never had so much feedback about a single topic from web comments, YouTube comments, email, Telegram, all sorts. Uh, suffice to say, it's in Thunar, and as soon as people started explaining it properly, I realized, oh yeah, that's been in Thunar all along. Yeah, same with KDE. <laughs> it's in Delphin. And you have now picked a different file manager, haven't you, Jesse? Yeah, so the two file managers that came up that I liked were Nemo, and uh, and thank you, Ike, the response, the, the topic, I keep on forgetting the name of one of these two file managers, and he said, it sounds like a... It sounds like a bird. I was like, oh yeah, Kaja. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Sounds like a seagull. Um, so there's Kaja and Nemo. Isn't it Kaha? Kaha. <laughs> yeah, I said it was a noise that they make. Kaha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's like fucking jalapenos. <laughs> okay, fine. Kaha. Um, and Nemo being the fork from the Mint project of files from uh, of Nautilus from Gnome and Kaha being the fork of Nautilus by the Marte team. Now, they both do this search forward and many people explained to me what it was called and what you could do. And of those two, I've chosen Nemo. It has a more Gnome look and that's what I'm going with. It's perfect. Thank you to everyone who responded. There was, like Joe points out, many, many people. Uh, and I am tempted to make a quick video of the difference so that everyone can see what it was that I was doing. So that'll be out before the next show. Right. So also, OggCamp. I completely forgot to announce that. Go to oggcamp.org. It's happening in Sheffield this year in August. Come get your cutlery. <laughs> yes, on the 18th and 19th of August in Sheffield. There's usually drinks and stuff on the 17th, the Friday before that. So it's the weekend of the 18th and 19th in Sheffield. Not many details have been released at this point, and I don't think it's going to be official accommodation and stuff, but um, put it in the calendar and uh, make your plans to make it to Sheffield. It's It's relatively central to the city. It's not a very big city anyway, by the looks of things. But then again, nothing is compared to London. So I have to trek all the way up north to Winterfell for that. Uh, so that should be good fun. I'm sure there'll be more details going forward and we will talk about that a bit more. And Fostalk Live is back. Hey. Yes, it's in the same place and this is on the 9th of June. It's in Sheffield? Yes, it's in Sheffield. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's in London. Like it was the last two times we did it. So uh, it's in the Harrison pub near King's Cross in London which is pretty central London. So yeah, put that in the, the diary, the 9th of June. We don't have a full lineup yet because quite frankly, we don't know if a bunch of podcasts are coming back. They're obviously coming back, but they always tease us with this or oh, we're having a break. We have to go for a curry, blah, blah, blah. But they've said they'll come regardless. So there you go. Uh, we will be doing something. Hopefully failing, you will be able to come here and hopefully Jesse, you will be able to come despite being a dad at that point. And uh, Dave and Marius and Stuart will be coming. And so hopefully we'll be doing a similar show at the end. And so that just leaves Linux Voice. Now, to the eagle-eared listener, you will know that Linux Voice have not released an episode since last year. I think it was like end of October, November time. I don't know, whatever. It was a long time ago. What are they doing? Hearing the internet? 
No, they're hearing the podcast, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> it's a perfectly reasonable phrase for a podcast, talking about another podcast. Except that eagles don't hear very well, so it was a terrible <laughs> thing to say. Anyway, <laughs> let's not get bogged down in details. I've been speaking to Graham quite a lot. And the bottom line is this. He said to me today, I said, like, right, what is the official line on this? Because I need to talk about it. And he said, the official line is that, yes, Ben, Andrew, and he are going to do something in terms of doing the, the Linux Voice podcast, probably with Mike, although maybe not all the time. And they'll probably rename it and host it independently, which is interesting. So they're going to go through yet another name change. Uh, and he said the three of them have agreed in principle, just not the execution of how it's going to work. So it looks like Linux Voice is not 100% dead, but the name probably is. And they'll probably call it Linux Lifestyle again or something. Who knows? But they will hopefully be there. Graham said he will definitely be there and he'll try and drag the other two. Mike's in Germany, so he won't come. So that is not really very good, is it, that I don't have a lineup yet? I've got a date and a venue, but I don't really want to put the tickets on sale. It's always free to come. Um, but I don't want to release the tickets until there's a proper lineup. So just put it in the diary. It is definitely happening. Something will happen in that pub, even if it's me just ranting about how shit everything apart from XFCD <laughs> is for three hours. Put them on sale, Joe. Go on, do it. I need a poster and stuff. I don't All those know. international it, it, people need to book tickets. Come on. All right, well, I'll put something up. I'll put some details and say, like, line up to be confirmed or something. But yes, 9th of June in London. Be there and be square, much like Biomon Sci-Fi Con. Okay, so this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. They are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK, and they sell computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 1604 and 1710. They're a company who cares about Linux. I say it every time, and it's true. All they do is Linux. It's not a side project for them. They sell machines with Linux on them, and specifically Ubuntu. Now, spoiler, I've got one of their machines, and okay, I'm running Ubuntu on it, but I tried loads of other distros first. I think even Solus worked on it. That's how good they are. And they've got loads of laptops from affordable stuff all the way up to powerhouses. They've got uh, a couple of desktops and even a couple of servers. Everything is configurable more or less from CPUs and amounts of RAM and storage. So you can really get something to suit your budget. And they deliver to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, then do mention us at checkout. There's a little drop down there. You can say late night Linux, and then they know we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Right, so now we've got an interview, which we will hear now. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Jono Bacon, who is a community expert, author, speaker, and podcaster. So <laughs> welcome, Jono. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. So you are a self-professed community expert, if you look at your website. And <laughs> we know you from kind of being the Ubuntu community manager from back in the day and yep. having quite a lot of experience with FOSS. But it's not just FOSS, is it? You kind of work for a broad variety of companies. Yeah. No, it's it's been... <clears throat> Well, I was going to say it's been interesting, but it might be just interesting to me. I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, uh, I mean, I, for me, it's always been about, you know, getting people to work together and people collaborating in different ways. And, um, I grew up in this just in the open source world. And, um, you know, I came to Ubuntu, um, from some previous projects, but it's been interesting building a business around this and working with companies and 
whether it's in, in, I mean, some of my clients are inside banks, they're, they're executive office spaces, there's hardware companies, and the, everybody wants to get people to work more efficiently together and more effectively together. And so, yeah, so it's, uh, I love it, you know, and I've learned a lot since doing it. So, And so is that the side of things that is people working together or is it they have communities as we would know them in the open source world? It's it's a bit of a mixture. When I started out doing this, it, it's it's a bit weird how this happened because I wrote this book, uh, The Art of Community, in 2009, the first edition came out, and I never, ever planned on really doing anything, any consulting or anything, but I had um, Deutsche Bank emailed me, and they said, we've read your book, and we want you to help us build a community inside of the bank. And I was thinking, Deutsche Bank? What? <laughs> Why would anyone want that? And so I started doing bits of work on the side. And originally, I was planning on doing the consulting primarily for building similar open source communities to Ubuntu, to Debian, to Fedora, whatever. But there's been more and more of a demand for communities inside of companies um, where, you know, the, you've got a big company and they're not working very well together. So you build a community to kind of optimize how that happens. Um, but they're, they're all very different. You know, the fundamental element is getting people to collaborate and get people to work together. But whether, you know, it's very different if you do it for, um, you know, a community that is wrapped around a service or a developer community. It's, it's different, but the fundamentals, I think, are all the same. Well, you're definitely qualified to answer my next question then. <laughs> so the reason that I asked you to come on is that I've seen increasingly in FOSS communities, at least, it's easy to deal with when you get a spammer or a bot or something like that. That's easy. It's just ban and delete. And, you know, there are tools yeah. for that. Yeah. But the, the biggest problem that I have had in trying to manage a, a small but growing community is the kind of people who are there all the time, very active and are kind of bringing, dragging the community down and making people want to avoid that community. Yeah, yeah. But they, they haven't done anything wrong enough to outright ban them. And, and so the question is, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And it's, I think it's something that a lot of people wrestle with. And I, I'm not going to profess that I have all the answers to it. But there's a few things that I've learned. One is that um, I think when you look at most people, everyone on this podcast, everyone listening to it, there's everyone's got certain drivers and biases and ambitions that are behind them. So when you join a community, there's a certain standard that you expect. And I think where we start to see problems is where that standard is either not met or where expectations are different. I mean, you know, it reminds me of back when I was at Canonical and when we brought out Unity, right? And Unity, in the eyes of some, was just a horrible thing for the company to do. Like, why? how dare you build something that isn't this, uh, you know, a pre-existing upstream project. And in the eyes of some, it was brilliant, you know, we're canonical and community are building something that's new. So no one was really wrong. Just everyone has different expectations of what that should be. And I think the broader philosophical approach to this is to try to understand those differences and try to bridge them in different ways. So what happens is, you know, I had to do this again a lot when I was at canonical was, there'd be members of the community who would be pretty pissed off about certain things, um, as every community has. But when I actually ended up having a conversation with them about it and trying to understand their, you know, get, get to know them a little bit more, the thing that they were upset about was rarely the actual thing that they were looking for. And this is one of the things I've learned from working particularly with startups where, I mean, this is especially the case in Silicon Valley where a lot of founders and startups have a very similar personality. They're like big visionaries. They've got bundles of enthusiasm, but not particularly organized. 
And invariably when founders say what they, when they say what they want, what they actually want is something quite different. And I think it's the same thing with, with communities. So to me, the higher level element here is understand what these people, the, the priorities, and then set those expectations really clearly. And sometimes that means you have to kind of break a few eggs to make an omelet. You have to, there are going to be, you're going to have to set those expectations knowing that you're going to piss some of your community off, but their expectations within that community are not realistic and they're going to be upset anyway. It's variations of how you do that is how you solve that problem. You sound in dangerously like Popey in that his answer to everything is a code of conduct. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't go that far. I actually think codes of conduct without sidetracking too much, I think codes of conduct were overblown because there is this notion that if you put together a code of conduct for a community, that it will fix a series of problems. What it, it doesn't. What it does is it sets the expectations around what conduct should be. But here's the thing. Our souls don't read codes of conduct, right? They, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, I've, I've told this story before elsewhere, but, um, you know, I run this, this conference every year called the Community Leadership Summit. And about five or six years ago, we had this incident where I was down there at six o'clock in the morning, crawling around on my hands and knees, setting all the AV up and getting everything wide up. And someone came up to me and said, hey, have you seen this blog post? Um, and this, this, this woman had basically boycotted OSCON, which CLS before, and CLS, um, because of a quote-unquote incident that occurred. Now, I wasn't privy to what this incident was, but there was there was some fire and flames in the comments basically saying it's ridiculous that these events don't have a code of conduct. So I took two seconds to basically cut and paste the code of conduct from, from Ubuntu, which we'd spent quite a bit of time putting together in consultation with the community and just dumped it on the CLS website. And the person in question and two or three of, of her friends showed up and they were like, we really appreciate, you know, thank you for putting the code of conduct together. And we're so thankful, blah, 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 blah. And I said to them, like, you know, I appreciate that, but it's not going to change anything. What will change conduct is is the norms of how people should behave and how people lead communities and stuff like that. A, a code of conduct is one tiny piece of that puzzle. So just stating the expectations to me is the easy thing. It's actually how you enforce that and how you how you play both an ally to the community as well as calling the community on its bullshit sometimes is is I think how we strike that balance. Yeah, and how heavy-handed you have to be as uh, a community administrator or, or the person who is at the <laughs> yeah. head of that. Yeah. And, and, and so where do, where do you see the heavy hand of community administration coming in and where should you have a community? You know, is there such a thing as a community that self-orchestrates or, or self-cleansing? Um, my, my theory on this is, and this is, of course, this is not backed up with any kind of scientific rigor, uh, is that in every 100 people, 10 of those people will produce most of the work, the content, the material that the other 90 will consume, right? So if you look at the broader open source community, about 10% of it, I would argue, uh, are actually producing the open source software that most of us tend to use. And I would say one in every 100 are people who are kind of like the heart, the soul, the leadership, like the voice, like the, the rock stars that really make things tick. Um, and these are not necessarily the high profile names like Linus Torvalds. It's the, it's the people who are just making things happen, the people who are on the ground. And I think uh, when communities have a number of those individuals, they tend to tick over pretty well, so long as they get the right balance and they understand the expectations of what the community should be doing. 
when you lack that leadership is when I think you start having problems because it basically turns into Lord of the Flies where people just start throwing stuff at each other. And I think you have to have somebody who is known and trusted by both the community and if there's a company involved by the company as well to be there as an advocate for the community to the company and advocate for the company to the community as well. Like, again, again, just using my example of Canonical, when I was there, there were a number of cases where um, I would have meetings with leadership at Canonical and I'd say, you know, I, what we're doing isn't the right thing. Like we have to make a change. Like we, th this is not fair to the community in some regard. And it, it, there was never malice behind why that was happening. It was just, um, you know, certain things weren't considered. And as a company grows, few people have got experience of communities. But in the same way, there'd be numerous times when I was in meetings or calls or ISC discussions with members of the community and they'd say, look, you're being ridiculous here, okay? Like, <laughs> And I think you, I think you need that honesty on both sides. Inver invariably, I think where we have problems is when you only see honesty on one side, but you don't see it on the other. Yes, that's easy from Canonical's point of view because while you rightly say that there's various people who use Ubuntu and what have you that disagreed with some of the steps that Canonical took, yeah. they are at least an open source company they're producing open source software the community goes hand in hand and the general uh, view is that they have the right attitude yeah but the idea of a community around a proprietary software or proprietary hardware must be a lot more difficult to earn that trust or get that sort of community to to, to back them yeah I, I think it is and i think a lot of this boils down to the perception of the intentions of the organization, right? So um, one of the things I learned earlier in my career, and it's, and it's been an incredibly helpful thing as I've proceeded, is that when you work for an organization that has a community or you're, you're in the, like, the inner circle of a community, you always have way more information than the rest of the community. So like when I was at Canonical or GitHub or XPRIZE, wherever, or with my clients, I know the people, I know the founders, I understand their motivations. You know, I've been out and had beers with them. I, I have to measure them as individuals. And therefore, I'm able to see the bullshit, but I'm also able there to see the, the, the intention and the, and the potential. And I think when you don't have that, one thing I think we've learned about humans is that when many humans, when you don't have the information uh, available to you, a lot of people just make it up, right? So... So I think that's the difference is that when you look at these storms and communities, in many cases, it's because it's the, 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 the people who are critical, they don't have a sense of, of that context. Like, I don't want to keep going back to Canonical as an example, but given the, the furore that there was around Unity, to me, Unity was never really much of an issue because I knew the development team. I knew Mark Shuttleworth. I knew the leadership of Canonical, and I knew that it was well-intentioned. Um, so I could justify it. But if you're just a typical Ubuntu user or a casual contributor and you don't know those people, it could be easy to see problems in that. And, and I think that is, that's a key thing. With, with proprietary communities, I think it operates in a similar way. Like I'm, a, I'm really into music and I have a little recording studio at home. And I've become a real fan of this company called Fractal Audio Systems. And they build this this device called an AxeFX. Um, and it's basically it models analog um, guitar amps and, and speaker cabinets. And they have got an insane 
community. They're com- they're besotted by uh, this company and the founder, this guy called Cliff. They're completely proprietary. None of it's open at all. They have no open APIs for how to build applications using it. Like it's completely closed source. But the community is incredibly passionate, and it's because consistently Fractal Audio Systems, um, they put these boxes out there, these AxeFX boxes. But they they'll re- like the the AxeFX too. They release twenty firmware updates over the course of its life. There's a consistency in always improving the experience for their customers. So even though they're proprietary, the community really has a faith and a belief in the company. They they have a faith and belief in the intentions of the company. They're clearly a little company that does really good stuff. And I think that's, that's to me, the critical element. So with regards to the community, how would you look to push new leadership within it? You know, if you start a project, you want someone to kind of take over. You don't always want to be the chief in charge. You want someone to yep. sort of take over. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, It's interesting. I think that we see this a lot in open source where there are certain people who want the power, right? So there are certain people and they just bounce from governance body to governance body. They're in, you know, councils and boards and stuff like that. And they really like the idea of being in charge. And then there are people who just want to do stuff. They just want to write code. They want to do testing. They want to write documentation, whatever. And in many cases, those doers are actually the people who are the real leaders. So to me, the way in which you source your leaders is to set, this is going to sound like a horribly management thing to say, but you set everybody up to be successful and then see which people naturally succeed in doing that. Like who are the people who are able to, for example, write great code, um, do good code review, mentor people when they get started? Who are the people who are very active in answering questions when new developers join the project or deal with controversies. Those people who are just good doers, in my mind, in the open source world is what you need more. Um, people who uh, who can write great blog posts, that's important, but it's I th- one of the things I've discovered is that the very best communities are populated by the people who are actually members of those communities, not representatives of those communities. So if you set people up to be successful, then what happens is, um, those people will just will naturally bubble to the surface. But you've got to, I think you've got to be intentional about it. You've got to go out to people and say, you know, I think it would be cool if you did this or if you did this. Um, just expecting people to do that of their own volition, that's less common, I think. But you've got to find someone who can bullshit a bit and spin things positively. Uh, right. That's a skill in of itself, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think I think you need somebody who can, um, you know, I think people operate at different Zoom levels, right? So... I mentioned Silicon Valley founders earlier on, like their zoom level is very much zoomed out. They see these big pieces and how they connect together. Like if you look at someone like Elon Musk, he looks at, well, you know, we could build an electric car and it could, we could produce this battery technology and we could tap into these markets and they're like big expanded thinking. But then when you get somebody like this guy who I was reading about last night, who works for this company, Fractal, who writes DSP code, like he is very much zoned into that specific piece. So I think every community can benefit from having someone who can look at that zoomed out potential. The problem is if you zoom out too far, then you get a bullshit artist. <laughs> you get <laughs> you get people who just read self-help books and uh, you know and fall into other people's arms and walk in hot coals and stuff like that. So you need zoomed out, but with an understanding of the day-to-day as well, I think. That's a, that's a very good um, description or, or metaphor for, for those things. That's, that's very useful ones to have. Um, <laughs> so 
taking it back to, to the Linux community, so Joey Snedden, who writes for OMG Ubuntu, yep. uh, he tweeted earlier this year saying, you know, I think the Linux community is probably the most toxic one that I'm a part of, full of anger, resentment, and dick-sizing. And <laughs> I wonder whether that rings true with you. What's your thoughts on that? And also having seen some, you know, more communities than the ones that we're sort of a part of a bubble of, whether yeah. you think it is true that the, the open source Linux community is, does have that problem. I think parts of it have that problem. I mean, I think people are just, people are people, right? So if you, I think if you take a cross-section of society, the attitudes in that cross-section will be broadly applicable in open source. Um, I think there's a couple of components to this. One is people are, their humanity is, I think, closeted when they're online. So there are people who are just, frankly, they're just dickheads when they're on the internet, but in person, they're very, very different. The gaming world has been riddled by this, you know, horrible individuals who are not just being, you know, rude and mean to each other, but, you know, swatting people and stuff like that, like that kid who who got busted recently for it. Yeah, there's also, there's also competition in that world. So that, I think that right. does flame things a bit That's more. a good point, yeah. I had an interesting experience a few years ago that kind of is, relates to this. So... Towards the end of my time at Canonical, I was ready for a change. I wanted to move on and do something else. And, but I wanted, I, there was various offers that kind of came through, but there wasn't anything that really was exciting enough to leave. And then I went to work at XPRIZE, uh, which is this organization that has these big competitions for solving uh, big problems in the world. And it was really exciting to go and work there. But what was interesting is that XPRIZE is not a technology company at all. Right. They don't really know anything about open source. They don't really know much about technology. They, they build competitions. So I spent a couple of years um, not working in open source and feeling a bit on the sidelines. I was still very much involved outside of work. But what was interesting about this was, without sounding like a massive cliche, spending time away from it helped me to have a bit more clarity on it. So, you know, I... In the XPRIZE world, XPRIZE is a wonderful organization, but there was a lot of talking and in some part, in some cases, and not necessarily as much doing. And one of the things I love about open source is, you know, uh, like one of my best friends, Stuart Langridge, I'm sure you guys know, um, uh, he, him and I over the years have just would have a harebrained idea about something. Let's make an audio multi-tracker and then we'll design it and we'll write some code and, and, you know, just try it and put it together and experiment. And I love that element of the open source community, but I'd forgotten that when I when I went to XPRIZE. That bit was, it was so normal that when I went to XPRIZE, it kind of passed over me. And then being out of that, you know, working day to day, it made me realize, again, without sounding cheesy, how special that is. And that's why I wanted to kind of come back close to the technology side is that there is this amazing pragmatism that exists in the open source world where people have ideas and they just do it. And there's a personality in the open source world that I think of, and there's hundreds of people that I know who are like this, where they're not massive self-promoters. They're just good engineers. They write good code. They like to have a beer in the evenings. They're just easy to get along with. And so I think that sometimes when we've been in it for, for a long time, I know Joey's been doing OMG Ubuntu for donkey's years. Sometimes we, we lose that perspective. And I'm not saying that Joey's wrong, but I don't think it's necessarily as bad as he might say. You're a diplomatic fucker, aren't you? I try. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, you must see that toxicity in the Linux community. Oh yeah, like, there's it's it's a vocal minority of people who just want to just be negative about everything and just want to attack. I mean, you talked about unity, like people who just attack them for that and then attack them for dropping it. And, yep. you know, there are people, and, you know, that's what Jesse was getting at there. Is that something that you see outside of FOSS bubbles? I think it, I think it exists in many places. Like, I just think that, you know, bear in mind that with, with open source and free software, everything is, it's, everything is, is out in the open. Everything's visible, right? It's, everyone's dirty laundry is hanging out there. I think you see this kind of stuff happening elsewhere, but it's behind closed doors. I mean, look at every company has got passive aggressive people. have got people who are cynical about everything that the company tries to do. I think this is just, I don't think this is particularly unique to open source. I just think it's more visible. Um, and in my mind, I've be, in, in recent years, I've become more and more of a stoic, like this philosophy. And my view is, frankly, is... I just don't give a shit about those people. Like if you, if you're going to be ultimately negative about anything, go ahead, go and hang out and be negative. I'd rather spend my time with people who are more positive. So I just ignore it. I just ignore the noise um, because it, it's not constructive. It doesn't get anyone anywhere. So, so I think it does exist. I just, I don't think it's especially unique to open source. Uh, there is, as a tiny example, there is one of my clients produces a video game Um designed for, for for quite young people. And you should see the toxicity in that world. It's horrendous. And that, they're not open source. So I just think it's, yeah, it is what it is. But you say you ignore it, but how can you ignore it? Uh, returning to my original question to you, yep. when it drags the rest of the community down, you, you can't just turn your back on it. Well, if it's- when I say ignore it, what I mean is I ignore it at a personal level. Now, from a leadership perspective, you can't ignore it. You've got to deal with it. And I think you have to take a pretty blunt force approach to it. Like, to me, there is a difference between, there, there are a few different layers to this. There is, um, there are people who are critical of something, right? And I think that's fine. I think if you're constructively critical, that's, that's absolutely fine. Like using Unity as an example again, there was a guy called Scott Ritchie in the Ubuntu community, was very involved in wine, you know, the uh, Windows emulator that isn't an emulator and um scott was not a fan of unity <laughs> by any stretch but he was incredibly constructive and he he would make his points in a way that we could have a conversation uh, and we all respected him for that and then you get some people who were just whinges um so i think you've got to optimize for, so I think it's important first of all that we don't conflate whinges and constructive criticism of course but the other thing as well is um, this is where I think moderation plays a role. Like um, if, if somebody is whinging and being rude and disrespectful, you have to block those people out. You have to get them out of there because it becomes a toxic environment. Now, this was hard in open source originally because so much activity was happening in mailing lists and IRC channels. So moderation is hard in mailing lists and IRC channels. It's pretty blunt, right? You, uh, you're, you're either you're basically booted out if, 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 uh, to be moderated. Whereas today with things like Mattermost and Slack and discourse and stuff like that, you can moderate people much easier, I think. But you've got to deal with it. it, it otherwise, if you let it fester, it does cause problems. I'm not denying that. 
But what if you try and deal with it and you try and have a word with the the person, the individual, and they just don't get it? But, you know, there's just a few people I'm thinking of, right, who have not done anything wrong, but they they just drag it down. And you try and explain to them why they've done that and they just don't get it. It just goes over their heads. Yeah. And you feel like you're a bit of a dick for just outright banning them from whatever it is. I mean, I, mostly the Telegram channel is kind of the Telegram group is what I'm thinking of. That's our kind of main right. community hub. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like you, so you can't really ban them. And once you've tried to speak to them and they haven't, and they're still hanging around doing the same stuff that's not... It's not, you know, they're not dropping N-bombs and being racist dicks or whatever, but they, yep. they're just sort of doing stuff that just drives people away. And I just find myself just tearing my non-existent hair out trying to <laughs> solve that. I think that's the tricky thing is that, you know, in those layers, there's, you know, there's people who are cons- constructive, right? Um, there are people, so constructive criticism is something we should encourage and, we should, and to me, people who are complaining, particularly in a constructive way, is a sign of community success because it shows that the community really cares about what's happening. If no one, Marilyn Manson once said this in an interview years ago, he said like, if I produce music that ever like that, no one disliked, then I'm not making an impact. Um, so we should encourage that. Then you've got people who are just outright racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic idiots. Right. And those people you deal with, with the band hammer, um, yeah. give, give them a couple of warnings, get rid of them. The tricky thing that I think you're referring to are those people who are just annoying yeah you know and it's difficult because there's not i think a lot you can do about that i think you can to me the best approach to that is basically mentoring as best you can um every community that i've been involved with has had those people um and and the approach that i've tried to take with this which has worked generally but it takes time is to sit down with those people and say look um, I want to understand what are the goals that you're trying to get out of this? Like, what what do you want to see happen? Because the current approach that you're taking is, is not solving the problem. Like, it's not accomplishing your goals in the way that we're doing this. Um, and then also to be honest with the way that they're perceived. There was one, I've told this story before, so you may have heard it, but there was one guy um, in, in the Ubuntu community who was incredibly critical. And what started happening is when I go to Ubuntu developer summits, and I'd be hanging out with people, particularly when I was hanging out in the bar with people, his name would pop up in slightly sarcastic circumstances. Like no one ever came out and said anything bad, but they'd like start referencing him more and more in a negative term. And I called him that like the week after I started noticing this. And I said, I just want to give you this information. It's just you're being perceived in this way. He had no idea. He had absolutely no idea that that view of him was growing. And his behavior started changing after that. But it needed mentoring. It needed guidance. And the tricky thing is, is that when you have a big community, the number of people who need the mentoring, the number of mentors that you've got are not necessarily the same number. In smaller communities, I think it's easier. And I would say, if you get to a point where you keep trying to mentor someone and keep trying to change them, keep trying to improve what they're doing, and they are not changing at all, that's the worst possible case scenario. and in those cases, I think it really is dependent on the individual. Like I found that in those cases, those people eventually just kind of get sick of it and just tend to move on. You know, they, they, they don't stick around all that long. The, the other approaches generally I've found tend to work. It's rare that I've seen it get to that point. So Fair enough. Well, there, there are people in our community who are just like at that point that you've said, I've tried everything and it's maybe I'm just not enough of a 
mentor and leader or whatever but like there there are people i'm not not going to name names or whatever but there are people who of course yeah who just are dragging it down you said annoying that i think that's a good word but um I just I don't feel I can ban them, but they're just yeah. every time they're there on on the channel or whatever. Like they, other people just avoid it, and you know you try talking to them and it, they just don't get it. Well, the other thing as well is, uh, and and this is very dependent on the specific community, but I think another element to this is in the design of that community is is uh, you know communities are social environments, right, and everybody with no exceptions, everybody in some way adheres to social norms. So the other question here is how do you structure that community in a way that incentivizes and encourages the kind of behavior that you want to see and um, disincentivizes the, the, the bad behavior. So, um, you know, so it, it, again, this is very specific and it's easier for new communities that you form because you can put those norms into action at the beginning but if you want to convert an existing community and put things in place where you can incentivize the right kind of behavior it takes the time to transition over to that you can't just do it bluntly otherwise everybody you know gets their pitchforks out so to give you a practical example uh, this is a project management tip which is if you're working with a team of people and everybody's got to do certain things to get stuff you know to be done like to, to complete a project with lots of people involved um, if you track all of those work items in a shared, what I would call a sacred document, something that you refer to every week in team meetings, and all of those actions are listed, and the assignments to those actions are listed, and you have a status column with bright green for done, orange for, you know, behind, red for not done or massively behind, that social shared document will mean that people will get the, they're more likely to get their stuff done because they don't want to be in that meeting which is a info enforced social setting they don't want to have their name next to something that's red because it's it it, it kind of knocks their it makes them look bad and so th i think there's lots of like little psychological things like that you can do that frankly you're manipulating people but you're manipulating people you know it's it's like social engineering with a smile <laughs> you know it's it's got good intentions well, that's a good tip man i feel like we could talk to you all night long but <laughs> we've already gone over half an hour so we should probably knock this on the head but um uh, you should probably plug your consulting firm then yeah i mean i'm just it's 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 pretty easy it's just john O'Bacon consulting because it's just me and i i want to keep it that way and yeah you can just you can go to my website johnobacon.com then you know i have such a ridiculous stupid name that luckily my social media accounts and stuff like that pretty much everywhere is john O'Bacon. so no, no one else has got such a ridiculous name. So, and uh, Bad Voltage as well, your podcast. Yeah, Bad Voltage is a show that we do with my uh, my friends Stuart Langridge and Jeremy Garcia, and uh, BadVoltage.org. You can go check that out. It's a good time. Yeah, and recently you had someone from Microsoft on, which was interesting. Yeah, Steve Wally. I've been friends with him for years. He's like he's like the uh, old bear of the open source world. He tells stories. Um, <laughs> tells a story, old Wally. Uh, so. And you said off air, Jono, that you would be coming to Foss Talk Live. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. One of the things I want to do actually is, uh, you know, we used to do Lug Radio years ago, and I want us to do another Lug Radio live in England. Um, yeah, I'd love that. You miss Wolverhampton so much. Uh, maybe not in Wolverhampton. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Well, if you do find yourself in London during that, then you are more than welcome to join Stuart on stage. I would love for, to. Uh, Fostalk Live. When is it again? I forget when it is. When is it? What's the date? It is June the 9th. I might see if I can coordinate a... Hang on, let me write this down. I might see if I can coordinate a bit of a, a, bit of a trip over. Yeah. Well, it'd be good to see you, man. Yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. I'd love to come over and see everyone. So, uh... And thank you for inviting me on, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's been good to have you, man, and hopefully speak to you again very soon. Likewise. Cheers, fellas. Well, it was definitely good to hear from John all there and, you know, get a more qualified perspective on the ins and outs of community management because it's not all as clear-cut as it seems. You know, on the surface, it's just people. Well, people are complex, and it turns out some people are better qualified to understand that than others, so... Definitely took a few tips on there, and I'm glad you guys actually asked the interesting questions. And I'm sorry I couldn't be there. Yeah, the only one I asked was yours. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I, I contributed something. But no, it was definitely good to have him on. And, you know, if you're going to get anyone to talk about community, well, you get the guy that can't stop saying it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Self-professed expert, as I said. Well, he is, isn't he? He's been around it for long enough. He, he knows his stuff, let's be fair about it. Like, he knows what he's on about. Yeah. All right, so that brings us to the end then. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And until then, then, I've been Joe. I've been Jesse. I've then, then, been Phelan. I now have then, this time, been Ike. <sighs> See you later. Bye.